And now, here they are! Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and I've been listening to Beatles records since I was a kid. I love them. I'm pretty sure there's no way for me to really understand how big the Beatles were in the late 60s. Sure, I know how many hits they had, how many albums they sold, and that their concerts were so insane they decided to stop performing because they literally couldn't stand all the screaming. I've seen the footage. I've seen the performance films, and though I am confident that I still cannot actually process the true significance of the feat, the fact that those four 20-somethings released 188 of the best original songs ever in less than eight years is mind-boggling. I know that what they accomplished was massive and beautiful, but I think the only way to really understand something that huge, that ubiquitous, that truly unprecedented was to have been there. We were four guys that uh, I met Paul and said, do you want to join me band, you know? And then George joined, and then Ringo joined. We were just a band who made it very, very big, that's all. I also don't think I'll ever really be able to understand how significant it was that the Beatles were really, really good. There had been other teen crazes, other heartthrobs, but by the late 60s, it was clear that John, Paul, George, and Ringo were something special. They weren't just historically popular, they were significant, artistically, influentially, culturally, and commercially. They sharpened their skills in tiny night spots, union halls, school gymnasiums, social clubs, and holiday dance pavilions from Liverpool, England to Hamburg, Germany, learning from the masters, responding to their audiences, playing off each other, and becoming something considerably bigger than the sum of their parts. They also seem to have caught a vision to place their skills into the service of some kind of higher purpose than mere fame and wealth. And with the launch of Apple Corps, they used their platform and their well-honed creative instincts to launch many other imaginative artists into the charged atmosphere of the late 60s and early 70s. I remember finding out about you Every day my mind is all around you Looking out from my lonely room Day after day Bring it home, baby, make it soon I give my love to you I was born in 1970 the first year of the post-Beatles era. I've seen all kinds of great artists come and go. I've seen several stars become the biggest names in the world at one time or another. But I think the only way to really understand the significance of what the Beatles did qualitatively, artistically, and how innovative it was, 
would have been to live through it, to be in the room where it happened. What must that have been like? Is anyone sort of thinking of this like making an album or more like sort of doing a lot of numbers than to be able to play them all one after the other? Because that's I'm good thinking, thinking. Half to play them and half like an album. Half that we're yeah. trying to record them. You know, say, say we did half of them this Thursday and then they didn't have to film the next lot of rehearsals or whatever. Yeah. And then we do another lot and do them in the same place, you know. once spent the better part of a rainy day at a college library when I was in junior high school watching a videotape of their famous final rooftop concert film because we didn't have one of those cutting-edge VCRs at home yet. I talked to my elders about Beatlemania, sure, but I was always more interested in the songs, the meat, and what it was like to experience that firsthand. My guest today on the podcast was right in the eye of that incredible storm. As the U.S. manager of Apple Records, Ken Mansfield worked hand in glove with the Beatles. He went clubbing with Paul, had strategy meetings with John, discussed masters with George, and had dinners with Ringo. He promoted their records and the records of the other artists they signed to the U.S. market. And get this, when the band played their final show, that famous freezing 42-minute long set on the roof of Apple's London offices, Ken Mansfield was one of a handful of people in the audience. Dubbed the man in the white coat, he sat there watching history. Are you ready on that? Ken recently released a wonderful book about his experiences with the Beatles in London, especially on that fateful day in January 1969 called The Roof, The Beatles' Final Concert. It's a fabulous, breezy read that chronicles his interactions with the Fab Four with all kinds of extra context. If you've seen Peter Jackson's incredible docuseries, The Beatles Get Back, Ken's observations make a wonderful first-hand account of those incredible days. I've got a Ken's story didn't end when the Beatles broke up. A few years later, he found himself smack dab in the midst of yet another cultural revolution. When projects he produced for Waylon Jennings and Jesse Coulter helped spark the outlaw country movement of the 70s. Throughout his amazing career, Ken was associated with an unbelievable list of artists, including Roy Orbison, the Flying Burrito Brothers, Badfinger, Dolly Parton, James Taylor, Judy Garland, Lou Rawls, The Beach Boys, The Band, Merle Haggard, and many, many more. I've been down the Mississippi, down through New Orleans, yes I have, 
ago, Ken went back to his mountaintop, the roof of the building that once housed Apple Records, to reflect on his amazing career and that final concert from the most significant of all rock bands. We'll talk about what he found up there half a century later. With a love like that, you know you should be glad. It all starts spinning right after we take care of a little bit of housekeeping. For the people in the cheaper seats, clap your hands. <laughs> and the rest of you, if you just rattle your jewelry. Hi, I'm Bill Keith, and I'm a Patreon backer of True Tunes. The show is really important to me, and I know that the money I contribute each month goes a long way toward helping with the cost associated with producing and distributing a show of this caliber. And yes, the rewards are cool too. We get early access to new episodes that we can download in a higher quality audio format, as well as invites to exclusive backers-only Zoom hangs and some special swag and stuff. There are multiple levels you can join at, and every gift helps. Check out patreon.com truetunes for more information on how to join me and the rest of the Patreon tribe. And thanks for considering a gift. It really will make a difference. Hey there, I'm Mark Feldbush from Columbus, Ohio. I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I've also left a rating and review of the show at Apple Podcasts. It really wasn't that hard. It didn't cost me anything. But this show means a heck of a lot to me. And I know that reviews and ratings make a big difference when it comes to how and if others discover these conversations. Would you take a few minutes, maybe even while you're listening, if you're not driving, of course, to leave a rating and a review? Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, the reviews posted there push out the podcast to platforms all around the world. Oh, and take some time to tell your friends about the show. Let's drive the numbers up together. Thanks. We're back with the man in the white coat, Ken Mansfield. This conversation was something else. Ken doesn't give interviews anymore, so I was actually a bit surprised that he said yes to this one. We connected through some mutual friends, and after an initial phone call in which I discovered that he's a big-time coffee fan, I sent him a copy of my book, Jesus Bread and Chocolate, and I roasted some coffee beans especially for him. And yes, I was kissing up to him a little bit. And much to my surprise and delight, by the time we spoke for the interview, he had gotten most of the way through my book and was loving the coffee. I guess my strategy worked. And I think he had plenty of that coffee when we met for the Zoom call because he was amped up and ready to ramble. It was a delight. And since this conversation covers so much ground and we talk about so much music, we're just going to load up the jukebox and let the records spill out all over the show. 
Bruce has found some killer tracks that line up with Ken's stories from his days at Apple and the Outlaws and more. So I suggest you just make yourself comfortable and get ready to hear some fantastic stories and some well-worn wisdom from one of the true elder statesmen of the record business. Ken Mansfield, it is an honor to have you on the podcast today, and I appreciate you making time for us. I know you don't do interviews anymore, so this is a real treat. Thank they got to come to you. They, <laughs> except if they want to come to my own podcast, which has been pre-recorded, so but I don't know when they're going to release it. So I did that with Brian Mason. Uh, Brian has been just an inspiration in my life to be able to do a podcast with him because he knows me better than I do. I mean, <laughs> I forget things, so I have to ask Brian, where you know, where was I? Was I in London when I did that with George, or was I, you know, I don't know. Brian, he has an archive on things I've done, and uh, just a real dear personal friend. So you've done a, a couple of books. I know I, I had your uh, Beatles, the Bible, and Bodega Bay book, and I think I wrote about that for True Tunes back in the first version of True Tunes a long time ago, but now you've got this new book, The Roof. Just give me kind of a high-level summary of the idea of this and when you wrote it. And The point is there was only a handful of us up there to start with, and only a handful of that handful left is still alive. And it was, uh, to some people, the most historic moment in rock and roll. Uh, but there's more to that 40 minutes you discussed. There was really, I want to take people inside the building. I wanted them to meet uh, some of the people that are with the heart of Apple, to get a sense of what the street smelled like and and uh, the stairways you went up and the people you met and the, the temperature and the heart of the whole thing. For me as a writer, um, I'm really bad with facts. That's why I have people like Brian Mason, because uh, sometimes I can't remember, and I do not who played uh, the tambourine on the fifth song on the fourth mix of the third album. I don't know that, you know. <laughs> and Paul delivered me from worrying about that when he said that he can't remember some of his songs on which album too and one one interview so right i've gone people that have a real personal feel the whole thing was extremely personal to me and uh i think that's why my friendships became dear with them i think that that's why they were lasting and even though when i went on to uh left uh, apple uh beyond that i was still doing things with them and for them just because they would get used to calling me. I was the U.S. manager. I was the guy they called when I was at Apple. You know, if Paul wanted a pair of sunglasses on that he saw, you know, on the Sunset Strip. <laughs> right. And uh, to me, these people were very, they were like me. And I you know, read your book that uh, we came up from maybe kind of common. <laughs> so, we, so I grew up uh, in northern Idaho, long in the reservation. And... Uh, and so, uh, you know, I was taught work honest day for an honest dollar and uh, your words, your most important thing. And I found that in the Beatles because they came out of Liverpool, very common, very common, uh, very, um, they grew up with courtesy and were taught manners and things like that. And that prevailed going into Apple. And once you were inside Apple, uh, it, it wasn't like I'm a Beatle and you're not. If you were now part of them and part of one of the you know, inner circles and Mal Evans, who uh, any Beatle fan knows, 
and I just fell in love with each other from day one, from the first time they came out in 1965 and we did the Hollywood Bowl concert. And I worked with Mal and Mal had a sense about me and I had a sense about him. So he just um, gave his evaluation to them of me with, I didn't know this was going on, but uh, they trusted Mal. And so from day one, they trusted me. And from day one, I kind of just moved way in past a lot of the outer circles, you know, and they were very, very loyal to old friendships. Tell me a little bit more about your childhood and, and even your early career that you sort of transitioned. What was it that set the stage for you to even be a candidate to work for the Beatles? Yeah, and that's interesting. Getting off of the Indian Reservation to the roof at Apple is kind of a, a strange transition. Um, we uh, only had country music where I grew up in Idaho. Uh, we didn't have uh, radio music programs at all. But there was a program out of Salt Lake City that was on once a week. There was a Burgermeister dance dance hall. There was the Lucky Logger. There were these programs that were on once a week. And I wasn't allowed to stay up late, but I would crawl under the covers and put the radio under the covers with me yeah. and search around and get these signals that would come from Salt Lake City, opposite of or uh, Chicago or things like that. And I don't know why, I was just fascinated with music. So, of course, I learned to play steel guitar at a young, <laughs> at a young age. And, uh, but I never thought anything about it. I just thought this is this lonely kid up in Idaho just liking music. That's as far as it went. And I really early on got into jazz and all the abstract music. And and I grew up with uh, with uh, Stan Kenton and Sauter and Finnegan and, uh, of course, Peggy Lee and Nat King Cole and all the, all the capital artists for some reason. I don't know. I was a, deeply drawn to the capital roster. I left home uh, 17 years old. I, I signed up to just to get away from the country, which I found out was the best place I'd ever been. But as a kid, you want to get out there, I want to go to Hollywood or whatever. So I joined the Navy. And my first, I got stationed in San Diego and my first liberty, a friend of mine in the Navy with me, lived in Hollywood. And he said, well, why don't I take you up to Hollywood with me? Mm. Well, sure. We drove on Highway 101, the Hollywood Freeway, and I went by that Capitol Tower. I swear, I got chills. I, mean, yeah. I still don't understand anything, John. But to think later on that I would have an executive office up high on that, in that building, you know, for years. So uh, by the time I went to, became the Capitol, Sinatra and Dean Martin were gone. They wound up Warner Reprise. And my big thrill that I was going to get to work with that King Cole, who died two months after I got there. Wow. But uh, I got to work with the, the great old roster of, with Peggy Lee and the four freshmen and all these mm -hmm. classic acts out of that era. Talking about your troubles and you never learned. Ride a painted pony, let the spinning wheel turn. Did you find a directing sign on the street? 
You talk about though a moment when you went to the Monterey Pop Festival. Yeah. That that was formative. You you mentioned this in the book that uh, you and some of the other suits, as you described yourselves, <laughs> uh, went to the festival and see all this hippie music, this rock and roll, this youth music. Tell me about the that festival and. Uh, if you can, some of the music that you saw and what was going on emotionally and that, that started to shift in you where you started to see that there was something happening here that you really, it was like next level for you. This was something important that, that was going on when you saw that crowd and you saw those artists and were saying, oh, wait a second, wait a second. This is, this is important. Yeah. At Capitol, um, we were becoming an old fogies label. I mean, we had all this great history, but we were not up to the times at that time. We had uh, Lou Rawls was probably our leading, <laughs> uh, our, our almost our only successful uh, black artist. When they put this record out, they called it rock and roll. I got a lot of, you know, nasty notes and dirty phone calls. When the record first came out, Hey, Jim. I said, yeah. I said, you jive. I said, what you talking about, baby? So you play them rock and roll songs, Jim. I said, what rock and roll? So that new record you got, I said, it ain't rock and roll, baby. It's a new day. We got a new age going for us now. We call it rock and soul, baby. Yeah. Tell it like it is. The facts tell it all. It says, for every little kiss, there's a little tears drop. Every single thrill, there's another heartache. The road gets rough, the going gets tough, yes, love is a hurting thing, oh, love is a hurting thing. Out of the last minute thing, somebody, uh, I was called upstairs and uh, somebody said, well, there's this festival up in Monterey and I think you should go because I was always on the street trying to get them to sign some of these street acts, you know, uh, and they just never... I couldn't get past the executive A&R staff at that time. So I got a couple other executives with me and we flew up at the last minute. Of course, with Capitol, we had this power. We had fifth row center seats for the whole festival. Things uh, were so different. Everybody was so beautiful and peace and love. And, and uh, it was just so happy. And so I can't remember the succession of the artists in the day, but I'm going to give it to you like all in kind of one lump in the this uh, uh, band comes out, The Who, and you know their show, and man, they start bashing <laughs> up things. And then Janis Joplin comes out. Down on me. We're in the fifth row center. I felt like she could have cut my head off with those bolts. She just, she was just, and at this point now, I'm already going, what is going on here? This is something, a world we don't understand. And then Jimi Hendrix comes out. Drop me, baby. Drop me all night long. Drop me, baby. Drop me all night long. Drop me, baby. And this just keeps going like this. And the funny thing for me, because I, I was a white boy from Idaho, I never 
heard the Temptations, all these black bands growing up. I wasn't into that music. But this guy that did it the most for me on that festival was Otis Redding. I had never experienced anything like that in my life. He came out, it's just like his power just almost knocked your chair back. I've never seen anything like it. What you want, honey, you got it. What you need, baby, you got it. All I'm asking for the respect when I get home. So the whole festival was a combination of different things like this. I mean, it was just, it was amazing. And our clothing maybe helped us, nobody bothered us. <laughs> nobody talked to us or wanted to hang with us or anything like that. But. We came back and we knew the world had changed, but we did follow up with Quicksilver Messenger. We knew then we had to get on board and we got uh, Quicksilver Messenger service and the Sons of Champlin and uh, the band, contemporary acts, and then Capitol, you know, got back up to speed. How old were you at the time? I was 20, uh, 28, I think, at the time, yeah. yeah. And you so, had started uh, in the aerospace field? Like, you were, <laughs> you went out of the Navy into that before getting into music? Well, I, I when I was in the Navy, I was a medical uh, corpsman, because I didn't want to hurt anybody. So I didn't I didn't want to fight or anything like that. And also, I was told if, you, if you're in the Navy, you never have to sleep on the ground. You always sleep in a bed if you're in the Navy. The thing I wasn't told was when when we go to war, the, the Navy medics are attached to the Marines. <laughs> so there went that. Anyway, uh, so I when I was a medical corpsman, I was working with doctors all day and all along, and I had no education, didn't even do well in high school, but now I'm working with educated people. So by the time I got out, I thought, I got to go to college. So I did. I graduated from college. I graduated from San Diego State. And... Uh, I really did well in college because I was working my way through college and uh, my grades were great. My services were great. So the college was asked to recommend two of their recent graduates for this classified space program to be able to be cleared and would be intelligent enough to handle stuff. So I went to work on the Saturn and the space, the Saturn and uh, surveyor program. And so um well, but I tell people later on is when I joined Capital, I went from the space industry to the real space industry. You know, <laughs> a, a, little whole, bit, a little different kind of high. <laughs> yeah. But I had worked with uh, all these guys with the plastic thing in their shirt, their polyester shirt with the pens and things in it. And they were all engineers. And and uh, we went to work at seven o'clock and we got off at five and, and uh, we, we worked all day, you know. And uh, so I could end up getting this job at Capitol through a really weird sequence of events. 
And uh, I had this discipline. I also had a, a college degree and uh, a measured high IQ. So I was something different for somebody that came to Capitol because they put me in promotion right away. So now I'm on the street with these guys that really knew what they were doing, you know. And uh, I got up and went to work at seven o'clock in the morning. I was out with disc jockeys, the night guys to bring them coffee and donuts and stuff. And I just went to stations all day long and worked with my artists real hard. And man, I shot up through Capitol. I, I can't tell you that. I think I moved up faster than anybody else did. And John, I'm not bragging because I had no idea. I say now today, the reason for my success was naivete. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any idea that I was doing something different, you know, or I, I was just doing what I do and things fell in place. Well, don't you let nobody turn you around, turn you around, turn you around. Well, don't you let nobody turn you around. You got to keep on walking, keep on talking, marching to the freedom line. You mentioned how Monterey the music at that time was becoming more integrated and even though you came from a pretty white background you had all this white music in your background there was something about otis redding's music that spoke to you so you were open to it you leaned into it as opposed to away from it yeah. and that's also something that's interesting to me that um the record company i could understand saying oh there's a market here there's people we're going to sell them music and they want this music let's give them music but you seem to have had almost a an emotional lean into the chemistry that was going on. And so Monterey is representing a lot of shifts that are happening in the culture. And you're young enough to lean into that as opposed to feel afraid of it and resist it. That's, that's Monterey, they say oh. that uh, there were uh, no arrests in Monterey. But uh, yeah, there was something on you. Now, Capitol was so far behind that I. I almost can't even say these words, but they made me the head of R&B. <laughs> now, <laughs> right. nobody was whiter than I was in those days, right. I mean, you know. And to be thrown in with this, but we uh, we hit with Lou Rawls. We had a smash record with Lou Rawls with uh, Love is a Hurting Thing. Mm -hmm. I became really friends with our jazz black artist, Cannonball Adderley and, and people like that. And then we made a deal with Invictus Records, which was the uh, Holland and Dozier of Holland, Dozier and Holland left and made a deal with us for a separate label called Invictus. And so now they send me back to Detroit to help set up the label. Yeah. And so there I'm there. So I was a novelty to them and yeah. everybody there liked me. They, we just, we got along great. And I got back and they were just, how to go, you know, how to go. And I said, you know, it's really cool. Even though I'm white, it was so greatly accepted. I, they even gave me a nickname. Oh, right away, we became such good friends. And, so the, and they said, well, what was your nickname? I said, Crackers. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know. Yeah, no idea. <laughs> they That's were making cool. fun of me the whole time. You know? uh, <laughs> I thought they were just enjoying my presence. But, uh, but we did get along. And then the, the big thing was uh, uh, then we signed uh, Rick Hall in Fame Records. The thing about Fame Records was Rick Hall was white, yep. and he he really mentored me and had a whole thing about that the uh, black community loved Rick okay. because he, he just had a soul and something, and he really imparted me to quit thinking about things 
appear so much, to, you know, uh, but get more heart thing, more feel things, more looking at the people, the artists, and and seeing the the stuff we had with each other in, in music. And there was something really deep inside of Rick, and he imparted that to me. And the thing that Rick taught me is he said, "Don't try to bull them. Don't try to you know because he said you they'll read you out right away. Yeah. But when you grow up that way." That wasn't bullshit with each other. You yeah. were, you know, we're bo you're both hungry and you're both uh, you know, living in bad places and and things like that. And I think maybe that's what Rick had, and it was the essence of him. Uh, he didn't need he didn't need to do anything to prove himself. We just we got some buddies there, and they understood each other. And he wasn't uh, trying to talk black or trying to you know do anything. He was just his music and friends and. And he took me on the road, and right. I couldn't have had this interview a few years, many years ago, because of the uh, payola thing. It was really bad. Oh, right, <laughs> right, right. right. Went to jail and really had some. Yeah. But uh, Rick said, uh, he said, we're going on the road, and we're going to go to the stations. And he said, I'm going to teach you how to carry the bag. Oh, and I didn't know. <laughs> right, right. So here I am in these seedy hotel rooms at three o'clock in the morning with the six black guys in there from the radio station and uh we're passing out some goodies let's say yeah <laughs> and that was scary because uh some of them were so kind to, to me coming into their community because they didn't trust me yet and i was coming in kind of fast you know but uh to, for what I had gone through, coming from off the Indian Reservation land in Idaho, which is still the most important thing to me in my life, is what I learned there with that culture. You can just see the depth of their spiritual thoughts and their, their belief systems and all that. So seems like the Beatles, similarly, growing up working class all the way over in Liverpool, heard and identified with some aspects of that same struggle. And that's one of the reasons they're, they're seeking out the music from the American South, mostly yeah. from African-American artists, yeah. and learning those songs. And that becomes the, the grist for their mill that, that, that starts to help them form who they're going to be. You got to see it firsthand because now you go from being a suit to actually working for the Beatles and they, they set up Apple Records. So tell me first, as an executive pulled into that, what was that creative missional purpose behind Apple Records? This, uh, it was two things, uh, genius and delusional. Uh, genius uh, and delusional. They thought, well, you know, as the Beatles, they would have all this influence to be able to have them find artists and have acceptance because people would accept the artists because the Beatles found them. Mm. Um, but the fact is you can't put out a notice that everybody come to my door and bring your records and we'll listen to everybody. You know? So 
poor Peter Asher, the head of a and his office was just stacked with stuff from all over. But the heart of what the Beatles did is they were the beginning of really thinking out something of a conglomerate. The Beatles thought, well, we can be a publisher, we can be a record label, we can be a film company. And uh, amongst all these things, uh, they created something that was really unique that companies have followed, you know, followed in that footstep. I don't think people really realize what they did with that by bringing everything into the, into the one basket. Um, they, now I had four bosses, four equal bosses. And um, the Beatles told Stanley Gordico, the president of Capital Industries, that they wanted me to come over and help them set up the label and then come back and run their company. And so I was a personal liaison between the UK and, and the United States. They put a natural, simple, simplicity to this whole thing. That's what I'm looking for. There was something very simple about their thinking. And it was very, when we had meetings, they would show up and they were almost like the guys from the, from the space program. It's almost like they had the little pencils in their shirts and they had their notebooks. I mean, they came in and we had real meetings and they understood marketing. Uh, they wanted to know more about marketing. And uh, what they wanted, like you and I want, they wanted everybody to be able to be heard. And you know, the record companies were rather formidable. And then especially the Capitol Tower, you walk up, here's this tower and you, you go in this lobby and where do you start, you know? Mm -hmm. So they kind of just tried to have an open door type thing. Just a knocking around the zoo on a Thursday afternoon. There's bars on all the windows and they're counting up the spoon, babe. And if I'm feeling edgy, it's a chick who's paid to be my slave. Yeah, oh, watch out, James. But she'll hit me with a needle. She thinks I'm trying to misbehave. So, um, you you go to London and you happen to be there for that show, which we just got to watch this long docu-series that Peter Jackson pulled together. So now for people who have seen that documentary, uh, this book, you, you had to go back and kind of pull all these memories and talk to different people and go back to London and walk up to the building, which is now, I think you said an Abercrombie and Fitch or something oh, like that. Down, yeah. Um, You've you've given us one person's perspective on having been there. So take us back and just tell me a little bit more about that moment or that time uh, and how that affected you, what it sounded like, what it felt like. And well, I had been to Beatles sessions before, um, but like at Abbey Road or something, but being in a Beatles session was you never went in the studio, you never went in any actual room. We would be privilege to just get out in the lobby and then the door would open and the Beatles would clown and talk and we'd you know, hang and stuff like that. So that was going to a Beatles session. But I guess by this time, um, I was privileged to be invited in by George. Now sitting in the room is uh, Billy Preston. Well, Billy and I made our bones together side by side at Capitol in Hollywood before. And we never dreamed that either one of us would be with the Beatles in London and sitting in that room at that time, you know, so 
that made it really special for both of us to see each other there. There was so much for me to observe the room and the people and, and the right. feelings and going on. And I was blessed to be there during a time of camaraderie. In fact, I told Ringo once that I felt like when I was around them because I was U.S. manager that they acted different in front of me because they wanted me to think they were really had it together and and, and uh, you know. And he said, "Oh yeah, Ken, we have nothing better to do when we we're the Beatles to press you. We've made it together, you know." But. Uh, the room was so special that day, and uh, it wasn't the song because they would scatter around, they would go through different things, and like little inside things, Ringo, who I say is the most competent drummer, competent drummer uh, in rock and roll, because he was the only guy that had the sense to play with the band, but did not to go over the top of anything. Mm -hmm. He let the moves develop, he let the things be open. He doesn't do a lot of flash. He sets a groove and he plays where he should be playing, you know, not where, you know. Uh, the intensity, Paul was the leader. And Paul didn't like the position he was in at that time because he's the guy that had to keep everything rolling. So he was the driving force behind it. Uh, George just always kind of did what he was told. And uh, that's just his nature, his kind nature. What I sense in the studio was this awareness that John and Paul had of each other. And there was a way they worked off of each other, even if they were in a disagreement with each other. There was this sense that they were really hooked, you know, hooked up. When, when we announced the uh, Apple label that Capital was going to distribute them, I spent a lot of time, with personal time, with Paul. And we were in his uh, hotels, we were at the Beverly Hotel one night, and I was making phone calls because I was behind, because I was spending all day with him. And he was working on his guitars, working on some songs, and I got done with my calls. And, and he was working on either Ubla Di Ubla or back to USSR or something. And I would say, well, you know, what about this? Or you take, you know, what do you think about this? And that was just natural. It was just conversation. I'm driving home from on Mulholland going, did I just go right with Paul McCartney? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, there was one song there for sure that I knew John had nothing to do with. And yet it had Lennon McCartney on. Now, I didn't expect him to put Lennon Mansfield on there, but anyway. In London, one night, I asked him, I said, well, how come uh, you wrote this song without John, yet you put John on co-writing? And uh, now I'm referring to what was happening in the studio here. He said that John and I are so connected with each other that I can almost be working on something and having John say, no, 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 that's not it. You know, try this. He said, mm -hmm. we're that closely linked. So there was something in the studio that you could see that essence, maybe even when John was out there and things weren't good or stuff, there was this bond and this tie they had and this communication they had. And in the book, I wrote about that day on the roof, the most special thing that day was, it was really bad at Apple at that time. The Beatles were really having a lot of problems. 
And the only reason we went up on the roof is because we had to have the final footage for the film. That was supposed to be the closing live concert. Nobody could get along well enough, long enough or well enough to go someplace else and spend that much time together. You know, when you're talking about going to a Greek Isle, that meant they had to spend two weeks together. You know, they didn't want to do that. Uh, and it kept narrowing down to finally we just went up on the roof. You know? right. And uh, anyway, is on the roof that day. Before that, there was just a lot of tension, a lot of tension. And I was told because I was with them just before they went the final few steps because they called me up. Somebody called me up to deliver a message to John or something. But it was almost like they were deciding whether they were going to do it. And they, uh, somebody told me, maybe it was Mal, that they got to the door going off the roof and it was, wasn't even decided they were going to open the door then. And then John said, oh, screw it, let's do it, you know. And out they go. They started playing. And as soon as they started playing, uh, they realized who they were. They had started out, it's just a hard rock four-piece band that just got it on, you know. And then that was their favorite thing in the world, just playing live. And they started in that group. Now, if, if you listen to the roughs and stuff, I cannot believe that they played that well, because it was freezing cold up there. We're on top of a five-story building. I mean, it was cold. All the things going on, but when they started playing, John looked over at Paul, or Paul looked over at John, and it was like this. And I'm, I'm only four feet away six feet away. It was like they went, yeah, this is us. Mm -hmm. This is who we are. We're just, a, we're a group of good buddies that have been together for a long time, for a lot of stuff, and this is us. You know, we're just a four-piece band that likes to rock out, and they rocked out up there that day. Yeah. For me, my favorite thing, one-liner that I ever wrote, happened after that day, as I said, they came up without a sound check. But they went back down the stairs with a soul check. They, I think that day was the reason also that the reason they were able to do Abbey Road. We were performers in Liverpool, Hamburg and around the dance halls, you know, and what we generated was fantastic when we played straight rock. And there was nobody to touch us in Britain, you know. Jackson's docu-series. How did that hit you? Did it did it bring anything back that you had forgotten, or uh, you know, how did how did it resonate with you? 
I liked it because he really let people, I'm talking about, I got to go in and sit on the floor and I was on the roof of them. Well, I felt he brought the people in there because yeah. some of it just uh, during the studio work, because this was a long documentary, those, it kind of dragged on a bit, you know, sometimes. But I think that's what people yeah. like. They like to see it, just yeah. what you guys were like, you know, like a lot of real un unimportant stuff in there. I liked it that he took that many hours and uh, just let people invited people into the whole the whole thing. The one thing, and uh, I really saw more and understood George better about how how he was in a way for me mistreated that he was just kind of shut out a lot of times where he would sometimes give a suggestion and like he wasn't even in the room. Nobody responded, nobody even considered it, you know. So I really understood George's frustration. Because you're sweet and lovely, I love you. I'm at uh, MGM, vice president of MGM, and uh, MGM Studios was having a sell-off of some of the furniture from their most famous movies, like The Bed from Gone with the Wind and stuff like that. So George calls me. He said, Ken, he said, you know, could you do me a favor? And I said, what? He said, could you get us into that private sale that's going to be done? Um, from the movies, MGM movies, the furniture. We'd like to get some of the stuff for, for um, our new place. And he said, and would you mind uh, if Patty came over and uh, you picked her up and would you just spend like five days with her just to keep people away and just, you know, just hang with her for five days. So I pick up Patty at the airport. She comes through in LAX at the time. I'm not sure it's still the same. When you come from customs, there's the big uh, glass. You get off the plane, you go down, you come through, and then you come out over at the other end there. So she gives off glass, she waves, hi, hi. I, was, I picked her up in my, my Cadillac Eldorado, and I uh, said, okay, I said, look, I'm not gonna drive the freeway, so I don't know what it is. But I'm just gonna take the back roads and more scenic, because she was uh, staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel. So we're driving along, and I just flip on the radio. Something in the way starts playing. And she kind of stopped for a while. It got over, I switched stations. And it wasn't 30 seconds before something played again. Mm. Five times something played between that point and when we got the bell from Beverly Hills Hotel. And she was just a glow walking on air to see uh, she's in America and to see what's happening. You know, because I don't know if we heard any other Beatles songs that day or not. But we sure heard something. Something in the way she knows And all I have to do is think of her Shows me. I don't want to leave her now. You know I'm leaving now. 
wasn't that much, I mean, just a year after that show that it was officially over. What was your transition out of Apple? What, how did that happen? And then what was next for you after that? Well, we knew, people at Apple knew that the end was near. Peter Asher, who was head of a Peter Asher and Peter Gordon, and myself, head of Apple uh, in America, and Mike Connor, who was the head of publishing, four of us just off the top of Apple, just went over to top of MGM. MGM hired us away to put the Apple people on top of MGM, which is struggling, and they thought we could save the label. But uh, we knew it was over. There was a sense. Nobody said the Beatles were going to break. In fact, we knew it was over that day on the roof, I think. We kind of knew when, when we went down the stairs that that was it. I don't know why. The funniest thing is, John, something happened that day that none of us expected. I just happened to be working out of the office in London during that thing. My being up on the roof that day had nothing to do with I was there to be up on the roof. Mal came down 15 minutes before Mal Evans and said, hey, Ken, quick, we're going up on the roof. And so I was there. And that day on the roof, for me, was just another day at the office. I just didn't think anything about it because there was stuff going on all the time. And I went down the stairs and Chris O'Dell was up there, who was also an American from from Tucson, Peter Asher's uh, assistant. And Chris and I walked down the stairs and never said a word to each other, never said a word to each other about today for maybe 20 years later. And I never wrote about that day. I never talked about that day. I never did any interviews for almost until my book came out, The Beatles, The Bible, and Bodega Bay. Then I had to start talking because I wrote it. And one of the reasons right. I wrote it is Ringo gave me, suggested I write something, you know, because mm. he trusted me. But um, there was something deep down inside that we all knew happened that day. We didn't know what it was. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Ken Mansfield right after this. Hello, my name's Rob, and I'm one of the Patreon backers of the True Tunes podcast. I'm honored to invite you to join me in support of True Tunes by signing up on their email list. I know email is often annoying, but by being on the list, I get notified when new episodes drop and when new articles get posted at truetunes.com. Sometimes, John even sends out short notes and gives away records and swag and stuff. Super cool. 
But really, the point is that by staying directly connected, I know that they don't have to pay Facebook or anyone else in order for me to hear from them, and that's important. They don't send out too many emails either, and I'm always happy to get them. So really, it would be helpful if you'd join me over here. You can find the sign-up link on the front page at truetunes.com. Oh, and don't forget to add John's email address, jjt at truetunes.com, to your contacts so that the emails don't get caught in your spam filter. And if you have any feedback on the show or questions, you can email him and he'll get back to you eventually. Thanks for listening. Hey, this is Ray, and I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I also follow and listen to the weekly Spotify gallery stage mixtape that John curates for us every week. And boy, is it eye-opening. Every week, usually on Wednesdays, the mix is updated around 40 songs from brand new releases to deep cuts, and from across a wide range of genres, including rock, Americana, indie, gospel, blues, sacred music, soul, and more. I've discovered tons of new songs and artists and have been reminded of things I love from long ago. It's also great to hear a mix that blends up great music that is just good, beautiful, and true. You can find the mix on the front page at truetunes.com or on the show notes page for this episode. And if you follow it, it will live there in your Spotify browser and update automatically every week. And don't miss the massive archive list where all the previous lists get saved. It now features over 5,000 songs. And as great as Spotify is for music discovery, please support the artists you love once you discover them. Thanks. Welcome back to the True Tunes Podcast. Nashville rebel They say leave that boy alone Don't you give him advice Or he'll turn to ice And you might as well talk to stone But I've got things to do And things to say So you transitioned over a few years Into becoming a record producer yourself Yeah Even a songwriter Um, Tell me about that transition And how you ended up, you know eventually having a whole next chapter back in America with people yeah. like Waylon Jennings and Jesse Coulter. Well, I desired my whole life was to be a producer, but uh, when I got hired at Capitol, that was so beautiful what was going on. I just put being a producer as a dream, because I never dreamed of working at a record label in the first place, but I just set it aside, but I kind of kept dabbling in it a little bit. And now I'm at uh, Barnaby CBS, and this out, this, there's a thing bubbling in the country market. And uh, I could see how this was, uh, this outlaw thing was there. It was kind of foaming starting to become something. And through a series of events, Waylon Jennings and I became friends. So now Willie is just getting out of his record label deal with Atlantic. Waylon is all of a sudden free. Uh, from RCA, is this thing that's coming up. Tom Paul's contract with MGM is over. And Jesse, well, I, I, I signed her to Capitol. Anyway, and Marty Robbins flew out to talk to me because he was thinking about leaving Columbia. 
because the, the word was out I was really in the country. I went to Andy Williams and I said, Andy, I want to shift 50% of all our resources to, to country music because I feel something coming along. And uh, he turned me down. He wouldn't let me devote. And so I, I, I quit over the dispute. On a package show in Buffalo with us and Kitty Wells and Charlie Fry. The show is long and we're just sitting there And we'd come to play and not just for the ride Well, we drank a lot of whiskey So I don't know if we went on that night at all But I don't think they even missed us I guess Buffalo ain't geared for me and Paul when you talk about that, you saw something was fomenting with this outlaw thing. What does that actually mean? At that it was point? like the James Dean thing. They were rebels and nobody had enough guts to live a life that way. So they lived their lives through us. You know, they, Waylon and those guys did whatever they wanted. They were just totally against the establishment and uh, people, I mean, this is to me really the sense of that thing. People were able to be their own bad self without having to get in trouble to do it. And they lived it through us. And they, uh, when they're in a crowd of other people at a concert and things like that, yeah, you know, there's this community thing again. It was another community thing. We went from playing in bars where they had, actually had the screen up to keep the beer balls from being thrown to headlining major concerts, major auditoriums, major major events and things like that. We would be going down the highway in the bus and, and there would be uh, the Hells Angels, maybe 20 Hells Angels and motorcycles behind, behind us. And just, it was just this world that was just so unbelievable. In fact, I even called it uh, Carlos uh, Castaneda wrote a book called The Separate Reality. And this was a separate reality. We were in our own world. We showed up in Minneapolis at a, for a concert one night to do sound check. And the guy came out and said, what are you doing here? He said, well, we're here for sound check. Sound check's at seven o'clock. He said, well, aren't you going to be late? Aren't you going to be messed up? Aren't you going <laughs> to? Well, no, but we'll do it if you will. We'll, we'll turn around and come back a little later and we'll get really stoned for you if that's what you want. But that's what they wanted from us. She's a good-hearted woman in love with a good time man. She loves me in spite of my wicked ways that she don't understand. Wasn't there kind of a reformation going on musically with what they were doing too? Yeah, there was. It got very, it got very raw again. It's got very four-piece band again. It got uh, to where some of these people were coming out of the woodworks that became, you know, classic artists later on just because of their uh, their association with outlaw music. There was a giant difference in it. Um, but we just we just did what we wanted to do, and we did it when we wanted to do it. And uh, was your first project with Waylon the Are You Ready for the Country album? It was the first real. Yeah, absolutely. You could center like three or four albums in there, but Are You Ready for the Country seemed to be the one that was 
at the pinnacle of it. It really was the one that turned turned the corner because what it did is Waylon went into RCA and told him that uh, he wanted to do his next album with me. And uh, I had this Hollywood Beatles thing going on, you know, with me or whatever, Nashville's impression. And uh, Chet Atkins and uh, Jerry Bradley said, no, no way. And Waylon said, well, I, I want him. And they said, no, you'll do who, who we tell you to do. So Waylon gets on the bus, he brings, <laughs> Loads, on, loads up the band, and they come out to L.A. I booked uh, Armin Steiner's Sound Lab, the most uh, upscale uh, technical place. That was one of the things with Whale and I. He taught me how to be natural, and I taught him how to think about detail and really work with echo and delays and stuff, you know, like that. So we, Whalen comes out there. We, two of us, we financed the album. So, uh, and what I did on that album, I had Graham Nash come in and, and sing some background on it. I used uh, I can, uh, I used um, Bobby, some Bobby Blue Bland musicians. I used uh, oh, some people from the you know the pop community in there. The Graham was singing background on one of the songs on on the album, and Neil Young shows up, and that was the day that Neil and Graham put everything back together for the those guys so they could be recording together again. But I said, Neil, this is perfect. I said, I've cut your song with Waylon, but I, we changed lyrics on something. I said, I need your permission. He said, well, you, I probably stole it from somebody else anyway, you know? So <laughs> we mixed the album down 100%, it's done. Waylon goes back to Nashville, walks into Jerry Bradley's office, plops the tapes down and said, this is my next album. And Jerry's sitting there looking at him and Waylon starts to walk away and turns around. He said, uh, this is my next album. Meaning you take this or you've got nothing from me. And he was really happening there. Well, they came, they, they caved in and the album became number one, three different times in that, in that year. And, uh, uh, Record World, I think it was Record World made it the number one country album of the year. And I hit with Jesse now, simultaneously almost, with I'm Not Lisa. So all of a sudden I got two of the hottest country artists, you know, the and the album at the time. And everybody wanted to be an album. And so yeah. it was just, uh, it's amazing. Talking to a preacher, said God was on his side. Talking to a pusher, they both were selling high. Well, they gotta tell the story, boys. I don't know the reason why. Are you ready for the country? Are you ready for me? Are you Did it tell you anything about what the audience like if you if you think about yourself in that role of what you knew about being an executive in AR in marketing, but then also now as a creative person, as a producer, were you starting to get a sense of what the audience wanted and why it was that the industry was so blind to that? 
Yeah, two things. Um, first of all, we couldn't get our records played because there was outlaw music. Eventually there became outlaw formatted radio station. But the big thing that showed me the difference when it happened is you went to a concert, country concert, the people came in and they sat down They waited for the show to go on. When you're doing concerts, you know, not, not in bars and stuff. All of a sudden, all the front rows are filled with kids, young people, rock and roll fans. And you could see the culture shift there where the, where the young people embraced it. So as they embraced it, they brought their lifestyle into it. They got there early. They were ready to stand all the whole time. They got up front, got as close as they could, and they got there early. It's like a festival. So that was a difference because all of a sudden you got these teenagers up in the front rows and they're singing along with the songs and they're just, you know, and that's when I realized it, it was it was cultural. Uh, and it was kids that wanted to be free. That's what happened to the Beatles. Isn't that funny that I ended up with two things? Mm -hmm. The Beatles made kids want to be free. They wanted to grow their hair long because that was uh, a gentle rebellion, I guess you could say. It didn't hurt anybody. <laughs> but uh, I never put those two together, me and those two things together before. The Beatles were answering that question that the young people were asking or wanting what we're dealing with. The outlaw thing answered the question that maybe even older people had never been able to ask or afraid to ask or just to just let go. It was almost like a uh, religious revival where all of a sudden people threw their hands up in the air and said, praise God, you know, they, they were delivered, but they were delivered from uh, having to be a certain way. Tessie liked Cadillacs and diamonds on her hand Way more had a reputation as the ladies' man Late one night her light love finally gave a sign Jesse parked her Cadillac and took her place in line. Cause ladies love outlaws like babies love stray dogs. Ladies touch babies like a banker touches gold. Waylon just, and he didn't, he wasn't acting, he wasn't following, well, I'll be an outlaw, man. Uh, he, uh, one night he told me uh, he was just worn out. He said, he said, I think my shivigator broke. He said, yeah, right. because now we've been doing this for a while and we didn't want to live up to that anymore because it was wearing. It, it took a lot of energy to be an outlaw all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you had to be an outlaw at the truck stop. You had to be an outlaw no matter where you were. You had to be right. you know, out of it. Someone called us outlaws in some old magazine. York said their posse down like I ain't never seen. Don't y'all think this outlaw bitch has done got out of hand? What started out to be a joke that all don't understand? Was it singing through my nose that got me busted by? I've long felt that music is essentially spiritual. Even with um, with John mentioning, you know, offhandedly that the Beatles had become bigger than Jesus, it, it that got so much 
flack, but if you go back and put it in context, doesn't it seem kind of like he's almost making a spiritual point? He's recognizing there's a hunger going on here. There's a frenzy going on that people are looking to the Beatles for something that they're not designed to fill. Give me some perspective as someone who was there. You opened the door on the John Lennon thing, and uh, that plagued him the rest of his life, that, that comment. And for some reason, he could never get out from underneath that comment, no matter how many times he tried to, to apologize or set it straight or all that. But what he was trying to say, and this is what he told me, he said, the problem was people were worshiping us when they should be worshiping someone of value. You know, so that Jesus thing, you can read that. If you want to read that exact words he said, you can see where he was, you know, he got, kind of got picked apart on that. The thing that the Beatles came to America with is they identified with our roots music. They were very much into our, our R&B music, what we call our R&B music. So you, what you were doing is you were identifying each it's like the life goes long and there's this bump and then life goes long and there's this bump and life goes long and there's this bunch and bumps these bumps are the outlaw music the beatles um whatever you know there's time when people rise up which i think we're ready for people to rise up right now maybe Amen. and i'm not talking only the church i'm talking about you know maybe the first time the world rises up together I don't right know. Yeah. i think music is at the heart of the people who do a lot of leading this world. And you can read it through our lyrics. Musicians have the great honor of being able to express that in such a deep level. Hi, Ringo. Hi, Happy New Year. Hi, Ringo. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Hello, Hare Krishna. The main bit is like, uh, I thought if, if some voices went, One of the things I really love about this book is it's not just a, a biography of the concert. It's not even the details. It's not a historical, like this happened and then at this moment and this yeah. time this happened. But but then you get to a point where you go back there and you go back out on the roof and you're at three Seville Row and you let the thing kind of wash over you. And you have kind of a moment where you say, wait a second, maybe the significance of what happened here is a different kind of significance than what I had originally thought. Maybe the significance is something different. And then you pivot in just a few pages to kind of offer a personal 
spiritual yeah. reflection. Tell me a little bit about how you you transition into this spiritual kind of almost like a jam session. And now that the book is done and you're looking back on it, what was the significance of the roof for you? I wanted to bring people into the uh, experience I had emotionally, but I didn't want to lose them along the way because really all along, I wanted to talk about God. Um, I had people say to me that uh, Ken has cred because he says Jesus is cool. And if Ken says Jesus is cool, he was the Beatles, so he must know who the cool people are, you know. <laughs> but I couldn't write that book and share that experience without what it was really all about. And what it was really all about is how delusioned you can be that I let something define me that there were better things like John had, you know, there's better people for people to worship than us when there's the, when you have Jesus around. And it defined me. And I had a trouble with that my, my whole life that I was defined by a certain experiences. But when I, like I said, it was just a dirty old roof. And we were up there and we made it a shrine. And we were so engrossed. And I'm not saying anything bad about anybody, anything or nothing about that. It was just my focus. I saw it so differently than, than what it was. What it was, it was a platform for me to go on and minister. I could have never, uh, I could have never had a ministry without the Beatles. So the roof was actually as big as that moment was one of the most historical moments in rock and roll. The purity of what it really was, was just a jump off for me, a point where I can look back and see how caught up I was in everything except things that had real meaning. God was more important than the Beatles <laughs> to turn it around. Um, how I saw it different as a man much later in life. I really love when you say, um, none of what is beginning to take place in this moment of introspection minimizes the incredible event that took place here half a century ago. It has more to do with my importance shrinking in comparison. I was fed many meals, a partaker of rampant feasts of phenomenal moments in my life. Indeed, in worldly terms, my story is about, quote, a lucky man who's made the grade. I'm ready to start running from what is beginning to unfold on this roof, but I'm aware within a matter of a few feet, I will become airborne if I do. <laughs> I love how you talk about how they refer to the Beatles as if it's not them. It's a, yeah. it's this animal that, <laughs> that walks around with them, but, but it's not them that thing had become so powerful that they needed to send it off in order to continue to live. And, and tragically it was too big for John to even survive it. You know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have been assassinated if it wasn't for the Beatles. Look at, I've been through a lot of things and the eventual, I've been, you know, I was a new ager for 10 years. I mean, I was a, a major new ager. I did astral projection, crystal healing. I did, um, mantras and all these, all these things. Uh, I mean, I was pretty active New Age, uh, and that whole ten years was something God used. You can't say, "Oh, you just wasted ten years off in La La Land." No, I didn't. So, in the book, at the end there, I just let the reader know 
here's what I've been through. This is amazing, my life, you know, in the world. When I got up there, what it was really about was something else. The long and winding road that leads to your door will never disappear. I've seen that road One last question I just would have is having seen what you've seen from the 60s generation uh, and working with the Beatles to the to the 70s and the outlaw country scene to the 80s and all of the excess of the 80s, all of these moments of reformation and and uh, degradation and all these cycles. Any final words of counsel or advice to listeners um, that are saying, boy, I'm, I'm hungry. Uh, I'm frustrated, I'm confused, I'm uh, disillusioned. Just what, what kind of words do you have for us now? Well, uh, that would put me in a pretty lofty position to even make a statement that would be one of guidance for people. But I'm going to just speak from my perspective and uh, just for people just to take in if there's a couple words that make any sense to them, because people are hurting right now. Because for me, there's a lot of evil in the world that's been allowed to, to grow. I feel like we're being really invaded right now with a lot of, uh, I, I can't get away from the word evil, I'm sorry, in our, in our world. And I think we need a, a place that's safe, a place we can go to, a place that's sure, a place of, of comfort, a place that never, ever, the truth has ever been invalidated. The thing about God is, He's perfect. He makes no mistakes. And what He, if He's, but everything He says to me is the truth. And so, how comforting it is if if I have a problem and I bring it to Him, uh, He knows the answer, and I just have to trust Him. And the fact that I can trust, just trust, just takes it off and puts the yoke <laughs> on Him. But if there's a, a some kind of a, something stirring inside of a, of a person that's just discontent or things are just not right, I'm not going to tell you what to do. It's just a choice that's there for you to make. It's a choice through observation. It's nobody telling you what to do. But just just look at your own life. Just stop and look back and try to see God's hand in your life and see what why you were here and why you were there and you thought that was such a disappointment but then it turned out it turned out good. God made you, he made you for a purpose and there's really much more to yourself than you've ever realized if you just look at it. John and I have had uh, pretty exciting lives. We've had some pretty rough times and uh, just, just listen to people that have gone through some things and pretty soon something's going to click. Something's going to start making sense to you. But you really have to trust. You really have to trust and you really have to seek to see if there have been things in your life that you just cannot deny that God had a part of this. You know? 
Well, thank you, Ken Mansfield, for being with us. This has been a real treat. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, John. It's a pleasure. Close your eyes and I'll close mine. Good night, sleep tight. Now the sun turns out his light. Good night, sleep tight. Dream sweet dreams for me. Thank you so much, Ken. That was incredible. And thank you for sharing your time and your wisdom with us today. We'll be right back after this. Hey there, Matt here, Patreon backer of True Tunes, reminding you that there are a few things that you can do that both help True Tunes and should be good for you too. First, make sure to sign up for the email list at truetunes.com so they don't have to pay middlemen to send you information. Next, make sure to leave a review and rating at Apple Podcasts if you have not yet. Also, find and follow the Spotify mix that John curates for us every week. It's amazing. Also, don't miss the swag shop. If you can support the show on a monthly basis, join me and the other backers at patreon.com slash truetunes. Or consider making a one-time gift via the PayPal link on the show notes page. Lastly, make sure to tell your friends about the show. Personal word of mouth is definitely the best marketing. Thanks. True Tunes is on the road. I've been to Indiana, California, Tennessee, Iowa, and Illinois so far, and we are currently looking at opportunities around the country. These conversations have been a lot of fun, with me bringing a turntable and some records and a guitar, and often finding artists or other special guests to join me. I've also done songwriting workshops, music business clinics, and even some conversations about how we can slow ourselves down and listen to music more carefully, more thoughtfully, and yes, more spiritually. So, from auditoriums to small groups, there's kind of something for everyone. You can follow all of the action at truetunes.com slash events. And if you would be interested in having me come speak in your neck of the woods, drop me a line at jjt at truetunes.com and let me know. I'm also excited to be aligning with the Porchlight Network for house shows. Porchlight is a growing network of house show venues around the country, and you can learn more at porchlight.art. So for house shows, look me up at Porchlight. For schools, venues, churches, or other opportunities, just connect with me directly. And hopefully, I'll be seeing you out there in person. We're back with the True Tunes Podcast. As I pull out my soapbox to wrap this up, I'm thinking about Ken's central idea about that rooftop concert with the Beatles and how he reached the top of the world again with Waylon and the Outlaws a few years later. 
I'm struck by the image of him returning to that literal roof in London to reconnect with the metaphorical mountaintop that, as thrilling as it was, seemed to define Mansfield's life until he could find something bigger to fill that space. And really, what's bigger than the Beatles? In my life, I think music has had such a power for me because it has been the soundtrack to so many of my mountaintop experiences from the ecstasy of life-changing concerts to the internal formation that happened as I played my favorite albums over and over as a sort of guided meditation, music has been there. Even my life's most significant moments, my marriage, baptism, the dedications and baptisms of my children, funerals, have been marked by significant music. And my career and identity has been wrapped up in music and concerts and festivals since I was a teen. And while I can't imagine how cool it would have been to sit there five feet from the Beatles for their final concert, I can relate to the idea of investing my identity in musical mountaintops. I can also relate to the painful but oh-so-necessary process of allowing those mountaintops to be seen as the dirty rooftops that they really are. For me to thrive, to grow, even to survive this life, I have had to learn, as Ken did, that while those mountaintop experiences certainly influence and shape me, they don't define me. My value isn't wrapped up in who I know, who I have worked with, where I have been. I have to come down from the mountain in order to get anything done. The Beatles had to break up in order to reach their own creative potential. Even they had to come down from that roof. As cool as it was for Ken to be up there with the lads, his face wasn't glowing when he came down. Let it be wasn't carved into stone tablets by the finger of God. When Lennon made his infamous bigger than Jesus quip, I think he was castigating us all for allowing a pop group to become so seemingly important. He wasn't impressed. Maybe he was even concerned. He seemed to know pretty early on that art, creativity, beauty, and possibly even friendship could not survive a machine designed to make a rock group bigger than God. Fifty years later, look what that machinery has given us. Lord have mercy. Waylon and Willie and the Outlaws pushed against the production and the fashion and the embellishments that took country music out of the hands of regular people and blasted it into the commercial stratosphere. They worked to pull the music down from the mountain of glitz and glamour back to the level of the common man, and Ken helped them do it. It was a powerful moment until the whole Outlaw thing just became another brand. Over the last several months, I have been thinking about mountaintops, places we work so hard to get to, we strain on the climb, we push and sacrifice and feel every muscle as it aches, but we push on, one foot in front of the other until we reach that summit, catch our breath and take in the view. But then, those places can become temples of wealth, comfort, power, prestige, and privilege. It's ironic to me that making real, honest, truthful, gritty music might get you to a mountaintop like that, if you're lucky. That's part of the climb. But it seems to be extremely difficult to create great art over an extended period when you are operating from heights like that. Timeless stories are born of tension, friction, failure, honest questions, and genuine seeking. Most mountaintop folks spend more time enjoying and protecting the view they've achieved than anything else. 
The brave ones, though, realize that the real work requires them to get up to the roof, play the set, pack up the gear, and get back to where they once belonged. It's such a cycle, isn't it? Maybe one of the answers rests in the idea that we're not supposed to make those rooftops, or mountaintops, or tabernacles our homes. Life is about the journey, and when the journey stops, the stories get boring. I love that Ken Mansfield, at 85 years old, is still telling great stories because he remains open, teachable, searching. I think that countercultural fire is still burning in his bones after all these years. Man, that is awesome. I want to be like Ken when I grow up. Okay, I'm climbing off my soapbox now, and fortunately, it's only a few inches off the basement floor. going to do it for this episode of the True Tunes podcast. Thank you to Ken Mansfield for taking so much time with us and for being so generous. And thanks to the folks at Post Hill Press and Working Title for setting all this up. Believe it or not, we have more with Ken for future episodes. In addition to his work with the Beatles and the Outlaws, Ken was tapped to produce the first Gaither Homecoming project. It became a massive and important album in Southern gospel and inspirational music, and Ken will tell us about it all in a future 45 RPM episode of the show. So again, thank you so much, Ken Mansfield. Don't forget to check out Ken's podcast with our good friend, Eddie DeGarmo. It's called The Beatles, The Bible, and Beyond, and season one is available now. Season two is coming soon. Check out his book, The Roof, The Beatles' Final Concert, and his other titles, including a new re-release of The Beatles, The Bible, and Bodega Bay. We'll link to them from the show notes page for this episode at truetunes.com slash the roof, or you can visit www.mainmansfield.com. Speaking of the show notes page, you'll definitely want to check that out for a complete list of all the music used on this episode, some special links to related videos, and a Spotify mix of all things Mansfield. It's a doozy. And thank you to the new members of the Patreon tribe. We see you out there. And if you have not joined up, your $5, $10, or even $20 a month donations sure help us out a lot. And if you're connected to foundations or organizations that give philanthropically, we are now able to receive tax-deductible gifts to help us continue with our mission. If you'd like more information on how to give that way, just drop me a line at jjt at truetunes.com and I'll point you in the right direction. And don't forget the new True Tunes t-shirts, hats, buttons, and pins. The swag store is stocked up with stuff and it would look much better on you than it does here on the shelves. Head over to truetunes.com and check it all out. Yes, the email list, the Spotify mix, the Apple podcast reviews and ratings. Please do it all. We appreciate it. It helps. Thanks. This podcast was written and produced by me, JJT, with co-production, editing, and sound design by Bruce A. Brown for Gyroscope Productions. The contents of the program are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. 
Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. Thoughts and opinions of our guests do not represent the positions of the producers or our sponsors. Discernment is recommended. The program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, this is JJT reminding you to enjoy the view from up there on the roof, but when the band stops playing, grab some gear and help with the loadout. We've got work to do elsewhere. Peace. Once again, I forgot where I started. It's <laughs> your coffee. Matter. By it the way. Matter. Oh, is that my coffee you're drinking? <laughs> yeah, that's what I told you. I, I'm, I'm drinking black. So it's pretty good black. That's Ethiopian. Yeah. That's a natural process Ethiopian. Get back. Thanks, Mo. I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves, and I hope we pass the audition.